0: Welcome to uh, UBI University. Uh, today's guest is Peter Barnes, and hopefully if the bio on the back of your book does you any justice, it should do us, and I, ho- I hope it does. But you're a writer and entrepreneur uh, with several successful businesses, and you've co-founded Working Assets Long Distance, um, and you were the author of five previous books, including Capitalism 3.0, but today we're talking about With Liberty and Dividends for All. So, Peter, thank you for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Peter.
2: You're welcome.
0: Uh, it's just a little bit choppy. Do you hear that? Dad?
2: I'm, um, in the, I'm outdoors and there's a little bit of wind in the background.
0: Okay. Is that yeah, that's
2: possible? Fine. It's not. not Yeah. Okay. Okay. I,
1: I think you're coming across, uh, pretty clearly and we want this to be conversational. So the non-perfection is part of the conversational part of the podcast. <laughs>
0: wonderful okay so um i guess let's start with this why did you exactly write this book what what about the topic was so important that you thought you needed to communicate to other people
2: well the most important reason that i wrote the book that the the reality that I think is is extremely important is that the middle class in America is disappearing. That jobs by themselves are never going to be able to support a large middle class, at least not in the foreseeable future, because labor income is not keeping up with the cost of living, and inequality is increasing, jobs are also becoming more temporary, less permanent, benefits and so on. So if we want to have a large middle class in America, as I certainly do, um, we need to supplement labor income with some form of ownership income or property income or welfare. But I don't like the idea of welfare. So my bias is towards uh, some kind of ownership or property income to supplement labor income and... Increase the security, the economic security of Americans, in such a way that we can all lead better lives.
0: Right. Uh, it's, as we talked with uh, we talked with uh, Andy Stern last week, who has proposed very similar ideas on the topic of the UBI. Um, how exactly, uh, in terms of what you're talking about with dividends from property how exactly would that work
2: well what i propose in that book is that we create essentially a new kind of property which might be called universal property and that what does that include well it has to be defined but you could the simplest example is the atmosphere So the atmosphere, it's unclear who owns the atmosphere, and as a result of that lack of clarity, we have enormous pollution, climate change, we're destroying nature, we're destroying Mm -hmm. the earth. This is not good. So one way to approach that is to say that we all collectively are the joint inheritors of the atmosphere, and we have a responsibility to preserve it for future generations, And in the process of fulfilling that responsibility to our children, we know that we have to limit the pollution of the atmosphere, particularly with greenhouse gases. And if we are the owners of the atmosphere collectively, we can do it. We can set limits and or put prices on pollution and then do what all owners do, which is to share their net revenue amongst themselves on a per-share basis. Well, the shares in universal property are all equal, one person, one share, at least as I am proposing it. Mm-hmm. So that um, if we all own the atmosphere together equally as co-owners and we want to stop pollution, we can charge rent to polluters. Polluters will have to pay... And who will they pay they will pay us this will raise our prices for various things because the cost of pollution is something that consumers will ultimately see but we will actually wind up getting uh, a dividend as co-owners of the atmosphere that is in most cases larger than the higher prices we have to pay anyway it's a way and that's one example the atmosphere is one example there are others for example, we could talk about our financial infrastructure,
0: mm-hmm. which
2: is not a natural asset, but it's a socially created asset that all of us together inherit from our ancestors, and it's critical to our economy. If we think of that as something that belongs to everybody, and when banks take advantage, use our financial infrastructure for Various things, including creating money out of thin air, uh, we should get paid by the banks for their use of our asset. So that would be another way we could, uh, generate dividends for everybody.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter, um, um, it, it occurs to me that a, a lot of these infrastructures, uh, have already been, uh, taken or used or presumed to be owned by people who really don't own them, and so uh, how do you, how do you deal with certain infrastructures like the internet, which are already being used for profit by certain companies, versus other new things like the atmosphere, which which have not been taken yet, as it were? And uh, uh, you think your idea is going to be used more in terms of new things, and just sort of see the stuff that's already been taken the commons that's been surrounded.
2: How have you thought about that? Uh, I haven't thought about it in quite those terms, but it's an interesting uh, way to look at it. The Internet is a tricky one. I mean, uh, many people who know more about the Internet than I do have been trying to figure out a way to make the Internet-based monopolies like Facebook and Google and Amazon and all of those that we know so well, um, who got rich, you know, their owners got fantastically rich as a result of this shared asset, the Internet. Uh, how, how can we uh, impose some kind of, uh, co- or require some kind of compensation uh, to the, the whole, which is us? And it's it's very complicated, and uh, it's, uh, some people say uh, we should charge you know every time electron moves uh, over the internet there'd be a little charge to it. That's one way to look at it, but I I um or that people would own their own data and every time Google used your personal data they would have to pay you a little bit of money. I think all of those approaches are far too complicated. Um, and, uh, that there is probably, I don't say this definitively, but I think there is probably a simpler way to approach this. And it may focus on the internet itself. We may think about monopoly more broadly, because in a way that is the real problem, uh, then it goes way beyond the internet, uh, that certain companies have, through their power and various other means, um, have gotten so much market power that, uh, uh, and enormous profits that that should be, those people who extract money because of their concentrated market power, you could say, you could argue that they are distorting the competitiveness. Of markets. Yep. And what is really sort of the underlying universal asset is competitive markets. We need, we've, we've built them over the years. We need to keep, we like them. Uh, and to the extent that individual corporations uh, diminish the competitiveness of our competitive market system, they should pay. That is like an externality that they are causing through their monopoly power that hurts other people so I that to me is a sort of a broader way to approach it than looking at the internet per se and um, it's just something I've been thinking about I don't have a definitive proposal mm-hmm. okay that's like that same
0: uh, that same principle can be applied to what you were talking about um, with banking is that Is that what you mean?
2: Yes. Okay. Banking is another area, and um, there's a couple of ways to approach banking. One has to do with the way banks create new money out of thin air by lending it into existence. This is what is called fractional reserve lending. Mm -hmm. If you put a $1,000 in the bank, they can, (coughs) using that $1,000 deposit, make ten thousand dollars in loans creating nine thousand new dollars out of thin air this is what a bank charter entitles them to do and uh when the money gets repaid with interest it it belongs to the bank and they just keep doing that over and over again and uh it's a it's a great deal but uh, somebody has to create new money this is a fact in a growing dynamic economy because each year we need to increase the money supply a certain amount just to keep things flowing so but who should be the creator of that new money in the old days middle ages and so forth it used to be the kings and the emperors who would print money with their faces on them and when they, those were first issued uh, the difference between the cost of making the coin uh, and the face value was a profit for the king, which is called seniorage. So mm-hmm. seniorage is, is not just related to kings. At any time a central bank or a government creates new money, there's there's seniorage involved, and it's a lot of money. In the U.S., uh, the value of the... Uh, of Every printing that we give to banks is is hundreds of billions of dollars a year. So, to answer your question, there's no reason, in fact, it's almost arguably constitutionally required, because the Constitution says that Congress shall be the creator of money. Uh, If the U.S. Treasury or the Federal Reserve were to create a certain amount of money every year, not an unlimited amount, but a certain amount... Um, and instead of having banks lend that into our economy, the let's say the Fed would just wire it electronically to everybody with a Social Security account. In other words, pretty much everybody. Um, and they would do whatever they wanted with it, but basically they would spend it into the economy. This is the sort of bonus, the, senior, the seniorage bonus <coughs> that would be shared equally by everybody. And, you know, we could get into a longer discussion about whether this would be a better way to stimulate the economy, say, than quantitative easing, which is the, what the Fed tried to do after 2008, where they pumped trillions of dollars into banks and pled with them to lend it productively into the economy in order to get things going again. Uh, why... Not just give that money to people directly and have them spend it into the economy. Not only would it help millions, hundreds of millions <laughs> of Americans make sure. ends meet, but it would actually stimulate demand and hence production and hence profits and all the other things we're trying to stimulate.
1: Well, that, right? that's really interesting, Peter, because th- there's been this uh, uh, this construct created uh, by people who are against universal basic income. That It's giving things away, but really you've been saying that a lot is actually being given away to banks and internet internet monopolies and other groups in the society. It just seems that right now people want to pick on the universal basic income idea as the only one who's being given something away.
2: Exactly. I mean, uh, the rich are rich because they've been giving, given or taken, uh, most of what they have. And to reduce the amount of takings on the top and to share equitably, I would argue, wealth, co-inherited wealth that legitimately belongs to us is, is not, uh, a radical idea it's not wasteful it's not giving away things for free it, it, it's kind of reclaiming wealth uh, that properly belongs to us
0: yeah and i would think that um when these companies do have that money coming in that most of it is probably going to uh try to stimulate their own business for their own gain or at least at the very least sort of have some sort of broad protection that would probably protect them from any policy where they see less money.
2: Sure, and a lot of it is is going to their shareholders too, either yeah. in dividends or in stock stock buybacks, which seems to be the latest gimmick. Yeah. And um, yeah, so uh, and and you know who are the shareholders. You know, there's this sort of myth that, well, everybody owns a few shares of stock and some mutual fund, or maybe they've got a pension fund or an IRA or something. So we all uh, benefit when companies pay dividends or or buy back some stock. Well, that isn't true at all. I mean, I don't remember the numbers, but you can be sure that the vast majority of Dividends and stock buybacks accrue to the benefit of a very small minority of the population. And the fact that, uh, yeah. So, uh, uh enough said there. Peter, uh, you, you initially, uh,
1: have, have been known for the idea of, of using the, uh, uh, carbon issue to fund universal basic income. Could you kind of? Right. In more detail, sort of walk us through how, as you initially conceived that that would work, and then kind of tell us the history of trying to implement that, and where you think uh, the likelihood stands today.
2: Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's how I kind of question. got into all of this. Right. I, I didn't uh, start as a... Uh, proponent of basic income uh, I started as an advocate for capping carbon emissions auctioning the permits underneath the cap and returning all the proceeds to everybody equally one person one share like they do in Alaska with their revenue from oil under state lands so that was my model and uh, my reason for proposing it as an alternative <laughs> To something called cap and trade, which was sort of the uh, mainstream climate proposal back in the early part of this century, um, was that cap and trade was a ripoff by historical polluters. They were going to be given free permits, which then they could sell, and da da da. It was a, like the, the railroad land grants, but times 10. Mm. And um, in, 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 not, in exchange, not even for building railroads, it was just a complete giveaway. So uh, a much better way to do it would have been to have the cap and that part is the ecological part, which is absolutely essential, uh, but add dividends with the revenue rather than giveaways to polluters. So that idea was actually introduced in Congress back in 2009 by Chris Van Holland from Maryland mm. and uh, uh, Maria Cantwell and Susan Collins, of all people, uh, were among those who, who sponsored this legislation. Needless to say, it did not go anywhere. It did not pass. And um, things quieted down for quite a while because... Uh, Nothing was happening on the climate front, at least on the legislative front, um, after Republicans got control of Congress in 2010, I guess. So, but more recently, as the clock on the you know carbon density of the atmosphere is gets ticking, and we get closer and closer to serious catastrophe. Um, Even some moderate Republicans, who are not climate deniers, have realized that something must be done. They don't like regulation, so what are they willing to accept? And uh, a few months ago, a proposal was put out by two former Republican secretaries of the Treasury, James Baker and George Shultz. It was endorsed by over 3,000 economists left, right, and center, including Janet Yellen, Ben Bernanke, Paul Krugman, a whole bunch of conservative economists. Anyway, the essence of that idea was almost exactly what I had proposed uh, way back in 2000 or so, uh, with a slight difference. But basically, they're calling for a fee on carbon emissions starting at $40 a ton and going up sort of gradually. Uh, and 100% of the revenue from that rising fee would be paid in dividends equally to every American. And their rationale for this, uh, well, they have several, uh, but the most significant one, which is the same as my original rationale, was that To make the transition to a a, a non-carbon economy is going to be difficult and it's going to take time and and there's going to be dislocations and things are going to happen. It's not going to be smooth. Uh, And people need to know, first of all, that they're not going to be made poorer by this transition. And secondly, that... uh, you know, this would be expanding it a bit into the UBI direction, that, yes, times are going to be tough for quite a while, but at least we'll have kind of a base income that will steady our individual boats while the big boat is wrecking like crazy. And you need that kind of popular trust and and feeling that we're all in this together if you're going to be able to sustain this very difficult transition. So what's going to happen next? I don't know. Um, You've got a lot of sort of progressive-slash-socialist Democrats who are now calling for a Green New Deal. That Green New Deal does not include what I've just talked about. It doesn't include a price on carbon, as far as I know, or a cap. Uh, It includes a lot of public spending, On various kinds of infrastructure, which will be helpful in transitioning to a low carbon economy. But so it's sort of interesting that on the one hand, you have, uh, more socialist minded people calling for major public spending and jobs, directly government jobs, to deal with the climate crisis. And, um, the other side, you have sort of a bipartisan mix. You have con- some conservatives and Democrats uh, who are calling for this sort of fee and dividend model, more of a market-based approach uh, than a government-driven approach. Uh, it's great that um, you know that both sides are getting engaged now and are coming forward with big ideas, even if they're somewhat different at this point. Um, So I think that, assuming, you know, we have a better Congress and a better president after 2020, that there is room for some kind of good outcome that would maybe combine some of the ideas of both the market pricing and dividend model and the regulation plus public spending model. So what? It's, you know, no one can say what's going to happen, but one can be perhaps a little bit optimistic at this point.
0: Hey, That—that was—you actually read my mind there. That was actually my my next question: is how these two would work with each other, or like? Um, I guess I can I can still ask right now. Uh, I mean, <clears throat> yeah, your plan. I don't think, uh, for as serious as the, uh, climate crisis is, I don't think it's the final solution to the problem. And I, I think it would have to work in conjunction with some other things if we're strictly talking about, uh, the environment. And so I, I, yeah, I do mm-hmm. think it, it's possible that it could be combined with something like the Green New Deal. But,
2: um. Well, I, I think it will, will happen have to be. It'll be a combination yeah. of things. But I, I, I think it's really important to have a driver of this thing that mm-hmm. sort of every minute of every day is pushing the economy to burn less carbon. If that isn't built into mm. the DNA of our economy, it's going to be an uphill struggle and we're not going to win. On the other hand, I, to, to make that driver really effective, if it, the best driver of all is an upstream cap, I don't want to get into a lot of wonky details. But if there were an upstream cap that just kept going down until we got to the level of emissions that we are, you know, that nature really is able to accept, uh, that's the best driver of all of this. Um, it's sort of like saying, well, we're going to get down to this level of pollution one way or the other. Now. If the government wants to spend money here or there, or private industry wants to spend money here or there, that's fine. The more, the merrier. But we are going to cut use. There's no fallback. We can just pay more and, and burn more. That's out. We can't do that anymore. Uh, we really have to cut emissions. That has to be built into whatever other system or policies we're, we're implementing. Are you still as
1: committed as you as you were to using the fee on carbon to fund universal basic income?
2: Yes absolutely. well let me let me um, qualify that. I don't like the term universal basic income and and I don't use it. I didn't use it in my book. Oh. Um, the, the reason I don't like it is, I mean, I'm for everything that it stands, universality, an income base, all that. Um, but it's sort of like, um, oh, single payer healthcare or something. It's, it's just, a not the right term. What, what can I say? Uh, the other thing is it sort of implies, or at least has been interpreted to imply enough, uh, uh, an income level that is "Quote basic. Now, what does one mean by basic? If you ask a lot of UBI supporters, they'll say, oh, maybe $1,000 a month, $12,000 a year, which is still kind of low compared to what it costs to live in America. But it's, it's a fair amount of money. And the implication is, you know, you could build a family with four people and you were getting... Four times twelve thousand dollars, forty-eight thousand a year. You know, you could kind of struggle by with a few odd jobs or something, which is a nice concept. But if you look at the numbers, it's it's a bit extreme, or what I'd rather just say, premature. Um, so look at really where the money could come from to provide monthly payments to 320 million Americans, uh, which is what I've been doing for several years, trying to find Mm -hmm. those places where we could implement this. It's actually not easy. Um, The carbon contribution to this would be relatively small. Uh, I mean, it would be significant, but uh, not anywhere near that level. It would be in the range of hundreds of dollars a month, uh, and I, I discovered this when I was this book, uh, With Liberty and Dividends for All, and was trying to actually think this through in a somewhat practical way, and uh, uh, so the carbon dividends are a piece of this, but if it's going to be anywhere near a what I would prefer to call a base income rather than a basic income, yeah. The difference being that a basic income is sort of tended to be an alternative to labor, a replacement for labor income. A lot of the basic income proponents are talking about automation as the coming threat, and uh, robots will put us all out of work, and therefore we need to have some kind of a basic income. Uh, that may indeed come to pass. But... Uh- Meanwhile, today, we have a much more pressing problem, which is what I said at the beginning, which is that everybody, not everybody, but, but, you know, tens of millions of Americans are economically insecure. They're working two jobs, so they're not unemployed, but they're, they can't pay the bills. When, when Trump laid off all those government employees, we saw firsthand how yes. many Americans, even those with decent jobs are living one check paycheck away from the very financial brink. So these people are not secure. Americans are not economically secure. So long before we get to a basic income that is enough to kind of keep people alive when machines take all of our jobs, long before then, we need to enable people to get through life the way things are now. And that wouldn't require quite as much money as a full basic income. It would require, you know, well, you can pick a number. Any number greater than zero is a step in in, in the right direction. Um, But my uh, uh, sense is that uh, several hundred dollars a month per person uh, coming from a variety of sources, including carbon, some kind of a uh, financial transaction fee, and we can talk about that if you want. Uh, And um, a few other sources, like the seniorage, uh, what what Milton Friedman at one point called helicopter money. You can put together a kind of portfolio of income streams like that, uh, which I should mention don't, actually involve raising income taxes on the rich if you wanted to supplement well i've been talking about you could throw in some revenue from taxing the rich more which is something that is gaining some favor but i'm saying we're even getting into the the tax code there's a lot of things we could do to pay people several hundred dollars a month and, and think of that as a base income which would be a supplement to labor income and other existing uh, safety net programs.
0: Hmm. Yeah, yes.
2: that 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 makes huh? a lot of sense. Sorry,
0: Teddy, yeah, uh, I understand that a little more clearly too. <clears throat> but um, I don't know. Uh, then what what protection should be in place that could cater to the current precarity of people's jobs currently, I understand that the plan of uh, whether it's uh, carbon tax with uh, the people paying the dividends and or you know on the banking industry would help, as you said, supplement that. But more from uh, I guess a top down view of what the labor market looks like for a lot of people and how much they're making is that the room for other policy to come in and improve or is there anything further exactly yeah
2: right i mean there are tons of ways you could approach the labor income problem you know ranging from empowering labor unions uh raising the minimum wage and doing other things so all of all of those are fine I don't see this as an either-or kind of thing. Right, yeah. Yeah, I I guess uh, some of the difference,
0: sorry, uh, is I think a lot of people who especially uh, are the proponents of specifically what they call universal basic income, treat it as like a not exactly one-step solution, but it does a lot of the heavy lifting to... Um, you know, uh, to help against a lot of the problems we're facing at the offset. But I see this more as just a more of a slight precaution that can help give people a little bit of a boost, but not, you know, that, that big wind in your sails that I think people who talk about automation and uh, formal UBI talk about. Is that, is that, correct would you say
2: yes that that is correct uh but let me add one other uh thought here which is that uh, big programs in america like you can think of social security which is probably the biggest government program um start small and that's just the way things work when social security started in 1935 uh, the payroll tax rate was 1% and the monthly benefit that, that retired workers got was something like $20 a month. It has gone up, uh, you know, multiples of that today, but not all at once. Every 10 years or so, Congress would raise it and keep raising it and so forth. So the way you get from here today to a future universal basic income, if that is where we're headed, and it may well be, um, is is first you've got to set up a system with a certain amount of money flowing flowing through it, like pipes. Okay, You have to build the pipes. Then people start getting a little bit of money out of the pipes, and they start realizing, this is a pretty good thing. Maybe we should ask for a little more. And, And as automation cranks in, people say oh yeah we need more so uh that's kind of how i see the pathway to universal basic income it's not going to be something that just falls into place overnight it's going to be something that is built uh over time and the first and most important step is to get the pipes installed and that's what i <laughs> that was sort of my hidden agenda with carbon uh dividends although i didn't say it uh at the time right. but I wanted to get a a new set of pipes installed that, you know, little by little, uh, more money could flow through.
1: Peter, uh, are there ideas out there in the basic income discussion that you think are either false or not the reasonable ways to go in the near term?
2: Oh, no. Yes and no. I mean, at, at this point in the near term, I think getting out a lot of ideas is, is good. And, uh, the marketplace of ideas, if you will, or the political, uh, process will kind of sift through the various ideas that are out there and some will rise and others will not. So I, I don't presume at this point to kind of pick any winners. I think it's just, good to get a lot of different ideas out there.
0: Uh, This is purely speculative, but I feel like it is a possibility. Um, So let's say that there is some sort of carbon tax that is put in place. Uh, As we've seen with uh, unions, like public sector unions, uh, there's been more of a push to, uh, well, to just uh, eliminate them, but also to search more private uh forms of it either like a company will say have i guess a more private company but a company will have a kind of replacement for what a union does but it doesn't exactly have the same function as a union do you think we'll see uh, companies try to impose some sort of more of an incrementalist Kind of not exactly a carbon tax on themselves, but like some sort of quota that they need to meet. But uh, it, it's just going to deteriorate, I, I sort of like
2: it. I would highly doubt it.
0: You no, know? huh, I don't. I don't know. I, I guess yeah, I could just, just see it very uh, well if you know, uh, power shifts hands after, let's say, the pipes are laid down.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. I'm not a believer in voluntary corporate goodness, if, if, well, yeah. if that's… yeah. Neither am I. I, I, I can just… They get.
0: Yeah. I could just see it going that way, possibly, and entice more people on yeah. the right.
1: Peter, I'm fascinated by the, uh, mm-hmm. by the bipartisan uh, rush uh, that recently has happened to your, to your idea. Were you surprised by that? Do you think that that is a new big hook, uh, to go forward? Is there any steam behind those 2000 people? Who's, who's driving that bus? Yeah. Uh,
2: well, yes, I was surprised, uh, very surprised, pleasantly surprised, of course. Uh, is there steam behind it? There is some steam. Um, I mean, on the other hand, uh, I mean, it's not only these economists who are pushing for it, but believe it or not, there are a few oil companies uh, and other big companies pushing for it because they see it as they see the handwriting on the wall, and they feel and they don't like regulation, like I said. So they figure, okay, something has to be done. This uh, is less bothersome to us than other approaches, so we'll support this kind of a preemptive strike. Uh, be that as it may uh what has yet is any republican senator or congress member endorsing this idea that this sort of old republican um, you know establishment is is warming to uh i am told by people who i think are in the know that uh at some point uh as Perhaps Trump's power begins to wane. That, um, some Republicans will, will step out, Republican politicians will step out in support of this plan. Obviously, nothing's going to actually pass until there's a new president, so it's more of an exercise in, in kind of laying the ground for some, something after 2020. And it would be great if some Republican politicians did step forward. Uh, behind this, uh, before Trump goes. Um, but what is actually going to happen, I cannot say.
1: In terms of,
2: uh, Senator,
1: uh, Warren's, um, wealth tax, Senator, uh, Sanders' estate tax, And AOC's proposed income, income tax. All of those, uh, proposed plans are slated to use that money to pay for new programs, uh, and not to, you know, help the middle class in in terms of, you know, money in your pocket. So how, how, how does recognizing that make you think about your, your proposal, which is really more of a direct income support proposal? Right.
2: Well, I see them as complementary and not mutually exclusive. Ah. Uh, and one of the reasons that I have been looking for these uh, non-tax-based uh, sources of revenue for the direct income support is to not compete with those people you mentioned uh, in terms of what would be done with the revenue from raising tax- taxes on the rich. I think it's fine to raise taxes on the rich and use the extra revenue uh, from those higher taxes for all sorts of programs. That is fine, and it doesn't in any way preclude uh, taking money by charging corporations for using wealth that belongs to all of us and earmarking that money, which is separate from tax revenue, uh, to pay dividends. So um, uh, that's my main point. I think there are two generically distinct pots of money that are out there. One is tax-based and the other is based on universal wealth or commonwealth, whatever you want to call it, Um, and making corporations who benefit from and use that wealth pay something for that use. No more free rides that's the sort of motto there, and use that money to guarantee, not guarantee, but to um, increase the economic security of all Americans. That is a very good use of that money. And um, one other point I just want to make, which is that a lot of progressives sort of poo-poo the idea of giving people money, uh, and say, you know, it's much better to have government spend it because all these, government will do all these great things. Um, so yes, there's good things that government can do with public spending. But I would also argue that raise, increasing the actual day-to-day security of lower- and middle-class Americans is an enormous public good in and of itself. It just happens to be a public good that doesn't require, you know, some visible piece of infrastructure uh, and a lot of bureaucrats to, to administer. But it is a real public good. The more economic security we have among the more people, the better we will all be, both individually and as a nation. And so it's not wasted money. Giving people money is not wasted wasting money. So uh,
0: Going off of that, I'm curious um, I, people can probably imagine how that money could help them, but uh, for the most uh, desperate for people working the most amount of jobs who were either at or below the poverty line, how specifically do you think this
2: could help them? It would help them, uh, you know, by giving them more money. Uh, And the point that I made earlier is that this would be extra money on top of existing safety net programs. Uh, And if people want to increase existing, existing safety net programs with government taxes and so forth, that's fine too uh in other words it might not solve all problems of the kinds of people you described but it would would help them and uh, uh you know and 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 would still need other programs peter um when
1: when you look at the uh work ethic uh question whether the basic income, universal basic income or initial basic income, whatever way it goes, uh, is just going to be a disincentive for people to work. When you consider that argument, that statement, that criticism, right. uh, what, have, what conclusions have you come to? What evidence, what are your thoughts about that?
2: <laughs> well, most of the people who make that argument, of course, are like rich people or something who, Actually, themselves get non-labor income, and it doesn't right. seem to diminish their, uh, you know, work ethic. So they say. Right. Anyway, but that's not the point. The the point is, there is no evidence that that claim is true. Uh, we have had in Alaska, as you know, uh, a, a dividend paid annually since about 1980, so 35 years or more, of every Alaskan getting one to two thousand dollars a year in dividends family for getting you know four to eight thousand uh was done to see whether after 35 years uh there has been any diminution in in the uh you know working habits of alaskans and the answer is there have been none uh or, or to be precise there was found that uh there was slightly more part-time uh, workers now than there used to be, uh, and it's possible that that increase in part-time over full-time work might be attributable to young people who took advantage of their dividend to stay in college a little longer uh, than they otherwise might have. They might have quit earlier and, and jumped immediately into the workforce. But that's fine. If that is one of the consequences of a little bit of a base income, mm-hmm. so be it. It's a good thing yeah so um, to answer your question, there's zero evidence in a real world uh, situation. Uh, I just people I just think people need more money to make their ends meet and put some money away for future rainy days, which is essential. Yeah
0: I was wondering, are there any uh, solutions that are um, I guess, similar to yours that you feel don't really make the cut, uh, that are like a step below a a full-blown UBI, but are uh, attempting to tackle uh, the climate crisis? And if you could say which uh, policies those are, because I'm I'm curious what the range of the different uh, ones are.
2: Well, th- those are sort of the two questions in one uh, yeah. about the efficacy of climate policies and the efficacy of UBI. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I'd have to take them <laughs> one at a time. It might <laughs> sure, yeah, more that's windy. fine. Sorry about uh, this. Would, would you want me to say a few words on, on that? Yeah, sure. Okay. So in terms of climate Policy. Uh, we talked about the Green New Deal and the uh, fee and dividend approach. Um, the, as far as the, it's hard to comment on the Green New Deal because its actual details are a little vague. So, but on the on the fee and dividend approach, the so-called Republican approach. Uh, I think the key question is, since they don't include an actual cap, which would have been the preferred method from my point of view, and I think from any environmental point of view, you really have to cap the physical emissions and then let the market set the price rather, rather than sort of pick an arbitrary uh, price and see what happens. Um so, um, that would be my criticism of the fee and dividend program. If I were running it, I would make it a cap and dividend program rather than a fee without a cap. Um, as far as UBI goes, as I said, there's a lot of ideas out there, and one that seems to be gathering some steam is an expanded earned income tax credit. So, you're familiar with it, but an earned income tax credit is like a tax rebate that people can get if they're number one, if they are working and earning um, earning labor income to a certain point, then they can get uh, an annual tax refund. So that, in, in effect, uh, it's a way to support low income workers, which is a good thing. Um, so some people have been saying, and some senators have actually sponsored bills, I think Kamala Harris has, has sponsored one, and Sherrod Brown, uh, which would increase that. So um, more low-income workers would get more money as a kind of tax uh, rebate. Um, that is a path. It's interesting. So that, that is a path to sort of towards a potential UBI that proceeds through the tax code, um, which is different from the path that I've been talking about, which sure. is sort of uh, based on universal property. Uh, again, I actually don't think they compete with each other. I sure. think they complement each other. Um the Expanded uh, Earned Income Tax Credit would be a nice way to top off uh, low-income workers' income, but it has, I mean, you have to bear in mind it is not universal and it is not unconditional. Uh, it only applies to people who are earning a certain amount of money, and so there's a work test and an income test. Uh, and it's not universal because there are a lot of people who don't work, not just lazy bums, but students and retired people and, uh, uh sick people and, you know. So, yeah. um, the, the, the universal model would cover everybody, uh, regardless of income, regardless of employment status. Uh, the earned income tax credit is more constricted, but there's plenty of room for both. And I really stress that. Especially if they're funded from different uh, revenue sources. Uh,
1: Peter, w- what have you learned from um, uh, some of the uh, Native American tribes that have experimented with this idea? And also, are there initiatives in the different states of the United States or cities or counties or other countries that have informed you as you're thinking about this idea.
2: Well, the most uh, notable Native American program is some uh, something that the uh, East Cherokee Band of Indians in North Carolina set up about ten years ago uh, when they started a casino, and uh, every year they divide the profits of the casino equally among, I think it's adults uh Members of the Cherokee tribe. I think there are about 16,000, at least in that particular band of Cherokees. Yeah. Uh, and so this has been going on for about 10 years, and they've been getting something like about $6,000 per person per year. And there was a study done by a sociologist who found that this was had already made a noticeable impact on the educational uh, uh, achievements of, of younger Cherokees, and the finding was that when parents had this extra income, uh, it just made family life much less stressed, and they became better parents, and the children benefited from better parenting and became better students, and, and you have these knockoff effects.
0: Yeah. So.
2: I think that is, uh, is a really encouraging uh, sign. Uh, there have been other experiments, you might say, uh, and some are just getting started now. Uh, and it's long and complicated uh, as to what those experiments might mean. Um, and I don't really give them a lot of credence, one way or the other, because uh, frankly, it all they do in these experiments, or what they do in, in these experiments, is they handpick a, a small number of people and give them a certain amount of money for a certain period of time, two years. You know, it's not forever. It's just a certain sure. period of time. And then they look and see, you know, to what extent did this change their lives? But what is absent from these experiments, are two things that are really important. One is permanence. It's a completely different thing to say, okay, we're going to give you $1,000 a month for 18 months. Have a ball or do something with it. It's like winning the lottery or something. To From that to saying, we're going to give you $500 a month for the rest of your life. That changes people in very different ways or affects people in very different ways. And the other second thing that's left out of all these pilots is is community. Uh, If you just handpick a few lucky winners and give them a little extra money for a little bit of time, you don't get what you would get if everybody were getting the money. Uh, There is kind of a a synergy that, uh, what, what can I say? It's not just the individual. Just affect individuals. It can lift whole communities like the Cherokees if you're pouring a lot of new cash into a community as a whole, not just to a few selected members. So that can't be really analyzed uh, by these pilots. So I think the most important things are the Alaska results, which don't show any, you know, dramatic change in Alaska. Alaska is I think, the least unequal state of the 50 states in terms of income distribution because of of the dividends. But it's not like Alaskans lead a vastly different life because of this sort of base income that they get. But they're very happy with it, and it has helped them. So that, I think, is the the most significant kind of um, experiential evidence that we have. Sure.
0: Peter, before we wrap up here, I'm curious, is there anything you think in terms of social change can be done to get the word out about this idea to prime the pump of the legislative process? Like, what can people do out there in order to ready? (laughs)
2: Well, If I had my druthers, uh, you know, I'm not going to do it, but I, I think millennials, I think this is a millennial issue, in part because millennials are going to be living with both climate change and automation and inequality and student debt and all these things. Uh, uh, so... I'll just say that historically, the the thing that got Social Security going in the 1930s was a grassroots movement called the Townsend Movement, uh, which was organized by seniors, uh, 90% of whom were living in poverty in the 1930s. And uh, the Townsend Movement had an idea. It was a bit radical. Uh, They wanted to pay $200 a month to every person over 60, and uh, finance it with a two percent sales tax national sales tax anyway they, it wasn't so much that specific proposal but the fact that millions of people joined the townsend movement and wrote letters to their congress members and um uh signed petitions and and there was tremendous. this uh it was and this was all in the days before the internet um, and it was that pressure from the bottom that led Roosevelt to propose Social Security, which is a very different concept. So what I would love to see today is millennials getting together and organizing something like the Townsend Movement, uh, demanding, say, $200 a month or $400 a month or $600 or 1000 whatever it is. It doesn't matter so much what the specific demand is what really matters is that they build grassroots support in a way that will push the president let us pray uh and the next congress to act on this
0: very well said and also uh, i'd like to add that you are speaking to a millennial right now so it's within my hands and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll decide if I want to pass it on.
2: <laughs> okay, great.
0: Well, anyway, Peter Barnes, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Uh, the book was well, With Liberty and Dividends for All. If you have anything to add, go ahead. But if not, uh, that's it for us. Thank you very much,
1: Peter. It was okay, great visiting I'm good. Thank today. you Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Likewise.